Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jeffrey Harding, author of Gettysburg's Lost Love Story. Jeffrey Harding is the author of Gettysburg's Lost Love Story, the ill-fated romance of General John Reynolds and Kate Hewitt. Why did you write this book? Well, it was a story that I used to tell on my tours all the time, but it was a story without closure. We never knew what happened to Kate Hewitt, and I set out a couple years ago to find out what her true fate was, and once I found out and learned quite a bit more about her, realized that uh, I needed to get the story out far and wide, so that turned into the book. You mentioned your tours, your licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg. Uh, how did you first encounter her story? John Reynolds is very famous, but uh, she's not as well known. Right, exactly. So uh, stop one on a battlefield tour for, for most guides is out on the first day's battlefield where Reynolds unfortunately meets his demise. But it's a chance to tell a human interest story right away and uh, had researched quite a bit. There have been a number of folks take a look at what had gone on with John Reynolds, not only with his army career, but his secret engagement uh, that came to the fore. And um, I was quite interested in that. Gettysburg, it's interesting, Phil. You have a battle that's so colossal. Uh, today, if we had a battle that big, uh, really interesting, uh, great author Tom Desjardins pointed out in his book um, that you'd need a million and a half people to equal the amount of people that were at Gettysburg at that time relative to the population. So 163,000 troops then would be a million and a half today. Interestingly, one out of 200 people alive in the United States was at Gettysburg for the battle. So it's just huge and you wonder, well, with all that size and consequence, how could anyone really forget what happened there? And you remember Lincoln's words, of course, from the Gettysburg Address, uh, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here but it can never forget what they did here. And the irony is, of course, we've remembered Lincoln's words, but a lot of people have forgotten what happened to Gettysburg. And that's why I think somewhere around a million and a half people here come to Gettysburg uh, each year to find out what happened there. And really the best way to help them remember it, I think, are sharing the stories. And this is a great story and one that I think will resonate with folks for long after their visit to Gettysburg. And it is a story that uh, helps you remember that these weren't just men in uniform on the battlefield, but they had families, they had lives. Absolutely. And, uh, did When you first started researching this, did you have a lot of material to work with? Had some good material from some research that had been done by a number of authors going back to the early 1960s, but there were uh, some holes that needed filling, some uncertainties uh, with regard to certain aspects of Kate Hewitt's life, and then and the big mystery, of course, uh, what her ultimate fate had been um, after he died. And uh, you'll see in the book that Kate Hewitt was secretly engaged to John Reynolds. No one uh, knew about this until he was killed. And there were some um, interesting things. When his remains were examined, his West Point ring was missing. Uh, where was it? Uh, he's wearing a small gold ring on his pinky, and inside it's inscribed with the words, Dear Kate. And then he has around his neck a silk cord 
with two Catholic items on it, a medal and a crucifix. Well, he's Presbyterian. It's a little unusual. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uncertainty with regard to what's going on here. Well, as fate would have it, uh, a couple days later, the remains are uh, sent to Philadelphia. One of his sisters lived there on Rittenhouse Square. And um, July 3rd, 2 a.m., the remains arrive. The next morning, or that morning, actually, um, there's a knock on the door, and it's Kate Hewitt. And really, when you think about the struggle she must have been going through, you know, here she has seen in the newspaper that he has been killed at Gettysburg. And here's a man that uh, she dearly loved, was engaged to, it was a secret. They had actually planned to announce her engagement to the family on July 8th. So she wants to see the remains, but she's torn. The family has no idea who she is. Bravely, she knocks on the door, introduces herself to the family, and sure enough, they see how distraught she is. She's weeping copiously over the remains. She tells the story, unfolds it for the family. They met on a ship coming from California down to the Isthmus, across on a train on another ship up to New York. He's coming back east to be commandant at West Point. She's coming back from the West Coast to enter a academy in Philadelphia to become a Catholic. And so they meet on the ship, fall in love, uh, become engaged to one another, and it's a secret. There are a number of thoughts on why it might have been a secret, but the bottom line is no one knows. And uh, there's one other element to it that really adds some intrigue to the story. Well, before we get to that, mm -hmm. let's go back to the beginning. Uh, John Reynolds, who was he? Where did he grow up? Yeah, so John Reynolds, uh, great question, Phil, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, 40 some miles from the battlefield, uh, local boy, if you will, uh, West Pointer, class of 1841, uh, does pretty well there. He's a middling student, but always loved horseback riding from day one um, and was an excellent uh, horseman. And so he graduates 1841. Well, he goes through some different duty assignments and what have you, and a typical Army career at that time, not too eventful. Um, but uh, before long, it's the 1840s, uh, 1846 time frame, and finds himself uh, on the cusp of war with Mexico. Who were his parents? Uh, parents, so John uh, Lancaster Reynolds, they referred to him, the dad, uh, who is interestingly, Kate Hewitt's an orphan, John's dad was an orphan. And uh, it's, it's interesting that that kind of comes full circle for John. But then his mother's uh, quite well known too. Uh, both have uh, ancestors going back into military history. So he's got a lot of inspiration for military life. He also has a brother. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, William Reynolds, who serves in the United States Navy. He's in the Navy leading up to the Civil War, in the Navy during the Civil War becomes an admiral. And was actually researching the brother, I have an interest in, Navy connections to the battle when I started looking more closely at John's story and then decided to do a uh, sidebar, sidebar of sorts on John Reynolds. And when I began to look in detail at the story of John and Kate, I realized there were some holes, there were some uncertainties, and of course today with the internet, uh, it's the wild, wild west, if you will, there's everything and then some out there and a lot of uh, mistakes. So the more I researched, the more I found that we needed to rein this in a little bit, get it straight, and hopefully tell the story once and for all as much as possible as to uh, uh, Kate's fate and their relationship, and certainly John's. 
Uh, the last biography done on John, formal biography, was in 1958. So long overdue. Uh, a good friend of mine, Mike Riley, Riley, did a monograph on John Reynolds in the 1990s, very well done. But I thought that this would be a good opportunity to tell his story again as well. Some modern scholarship, if you will, looking at his experiences in Mexico, certainly in the Civil War as well. Uh, John's father ran a newspaper in Lancaster. Uh, yes, was, he did. Were those newspapers politically affiliated at that time? Uh, yes, yes, definitely affiliated with, uh, what, and it's true everywhere. It's true in Gettysburg, true in Lancaster as well. Um, but um, John's dad was very close with uh, a man who becomes President of the United States, of course, uh, President Buchanan. And John's dad's handling a lot of personal affairs and professional things for Buchanan uh, while he's away uh, at Congress and then ultimately as president. So, What kind of a childhood did John have? Was it a privileged childhood with a good education? Yeah, I would say definitely a good, good education. In the book we discuss, he goes to uh, John Beck's school in Lidditz, a uh, very fine school. Uh, John raved about it as a young man, writing letters home about his experiences there. Had an excellent education, uh, ends up in Baltimore and then back in Lancaster to finish his uh, primary education and um, ultimately, of course, to West Point. But it's um, through the connections that John's dad has that ultimately helps with the process, of course, being admitted to West Point. What was that process like? Was it was it easy for him to use those connections to get into West Point? Yeah, I think fairly easy uh, if you're prominent enough. Um, certainly, uh, you see this with other individuals in history. Um, interesting because they applied a little bit early. You had to be a certain age and the first letters written and what have you. We're expecting maybe John's going to get appointed to West Point and they get a letter back kind of chagrined that, well, he's not of age yet. You need to be 16 and uh, by the, the time that uh, school starts for any given year and uh, his birthday's in September. And and it was a little late, so they had to wait another year. But John gets in, of course, he's going to be class of 41. But uh, it's interesting, too, that the day after he writes his acceptance letter, uh, a new uh, individual is appointed in the government named uh, Poinsett. And most people might recognize that name. Uh, becomes, you know, known for the flower Poinsettia. But uh, with him and John ending up going to Mexico, I thought it was quite ironic, and we mentioned this in the book. What would it have been like for a 16-year-old to go to West Point at that time? Oh, my gosh. Overwhelming. You know, West Point had made great strides by then. Um, early on, they struggled there to have any kind of decent curriculum, and uh, it's just all over the board. But uh, they call it the golden age. John's there basically with a lot of other classmates that are ultimately going to serve in Mexico and then finally in the Civil War. But uh, very uh, demanding curriculum. Uh, you start out with a summer encampment, of course, and John writes a letter home, actually to his brother William, uh, initially, uh, about his experience with the summer encampment. And he's a bit chagrined, uh, ambivalent, if you will. Uh, doesn't quite uh, think that maybe that's where he needs to be. Let's go ahead and get to barracks and get this thing going. So uh, who were some of the figures that he was with at West Point? Well, interestingly, um, at Gettysburg, there's a Confederate officer killed in Pickett's Charge, uh, Richard Garnett, uh, one of Reynolds' classmates. Uh, one of his greatest friends there is um, Sherman, General Sherman of, uh, of course, uh, quite famous, uh, known as Cump Sherman up there, William Tecumseh Sherman, of course. Uh, they're very close, stationed together early on in their careers, uh, and uh, they liked to hunt together and became uh, fast friends. Um, but he has friends on both sides of the equation as it unfolds for the Civil War, which, of course, makes it extremely difficult for him, as it did so many officers during the war. Where did Kate grow up? Kate grew up in, uh, we believe, Owego, 
So that's the key, Owego, not Oswego, uh, New York. And that's one of the mistakes that was out there online uh, for any number of reasons. But if you examine the primary source documents where she provided information, you'll see it's Owego, New York, a beautiful little town covered quite well in the book. We uh, work with the historical society there, get some wonderful descriptions of what it would have been like when she was there. She's an orphan. Uh, I worked with an outstanding genealogist on this effort, uh, initial effort to track down Kate's fate, Mary Stanford Pitkin. And uh, she made every effort uh, that could be made and then some to locate Kate's parents. This will prove to be a Rubik's Cube we could not solve, but we were able to, to triangulate enough information to place Kate at Owego. She said it. We also found the elusive missing brother that was mentioned by the Reynolds family. Kate had told them she had a brother and uh, we found uh, a number of primary source documents that locate him in Owego. So, of course, that makes perfect sense then that she's in Owego. Was there any documentary evidence about what type of an education she would have had? Yes and no. We don't know the exact school she went to. What we do know from any documents that we found is she seems to have an outstanding education. And we also know that there were some very good schools in Owego. A number of great schools, of course, all across the state. We don't know if she went away to school. We don't know if she went in Owego. Unfortunately, the one school where we tend to think she probably attended, the documentation for the years she would have been there is scant at best, and we're unable to lock that down completely. Was there an age difference between them? Yes, absolutely. So he's 1820, September 21st, not the 20th, by the way. That's another mistake that floats around out there in books that you might look at or online. Um, but Kate is born April 1st, 1836. So by the time uh, of John Reynolds' demise at Gettysburg, he's 42, she's 27. But I always tell people in tours, age isn't necessarily the issue of why they kept it a secret. Some people might think that. Back then, of course, that's not a big deal. Uh, certainly religious differences are, and it's believed that she was Irish. She certainly ends up converting to Catholicism. Um, so you have that, and that may have been why it's a secret. But we unfolded some other things in the book that we believe may speak to that as well. So it's, it's uncertain, but there are a number of reasons it might have been a secret. So uh, he graduates from West Point, and how does he decide what branch to choose? Yeah, well, he loves horses. So it's going to be cavalry or dragoons, as they called it early on, uh, or it's going to be artillery, where he can put those skills to work. It ends up third U.S. artillery, and he's happy about that. First duty station down at Fort McHenry. Uh, which is interesting. He finds himself in charge of the fort right away as officer of the day. Most of the officers are in town, uh, and he writes a letter home about that. It's quite interesting. But, uh, yes, he's, he's artillery all the way, and even when he comes back as commandant, the photograph that's taken of him uh, as commandant, he's got his artillery hat, and he's got the crossed cannon, which is the insignia and what have you. So he, he loved that. What would have his career been like in the period from the time he graduated up until the Mexican War? So, um, rather mundane. Uh, he, he suffers tremendous illness when he's um, down at St. Augustine. Uh, actually helped nurse back to health by Braxton Bragg, of all people, who writes a real heartfelt letter home of uh, taking care of John, which is anything uh, from what you might expect of Bragg if you read his history. But nonetheless, he gets through it. Uh, ends up in Charleston, and that's where he and um, Sherman become really fast friends. Um, but, but uneventful is probably the best way to, to speak to it. Uh, at that time, it's mostly East Coast duty stations. He'll serve plenty on the frontier later, but up until the Mexican War, 
nothing really stands out other than it's duty, it's army life, and, and progress is slow as far as promotion. Well, let's talk about the Mexican War. Uh, when does it begin and how does he start to play a role in it? Yeah, so um, Phil, 1845, Zachary Taylor is uh, moved with a, a rather large force down to Texas. Uh, you know, there's um, some concern of what's happening in Mexico, uh, and it's argued whether or not we provoke that war or not. But regardless, uh, Reynolds is there when things are heating up. And in 1846, uh, the Mexicans have moved to cut off the supply line from the fort that Zachary Taylor had established. Now, this fort is called Fort Texas originally. It ultimately be called Fort Brown, and then the town is going to be Brownsville, Texas, and that's in honor of a soldier that will lose his life there while he's in temporary command. Zachary Taylor will move against the Mexican forces that have cut off, tried to cut off his supply line, and the battles that ensue will basically open the Mexican War. Meanwhile, Reynolds is still at the fort with a small cadre of his um, fellow soldiers, and the Mexicans move to take the fort. And basically, it ends up being a siege for a number of days. But it's, it's pretty precarious. Unfortunately, Major Brown is uh, wounded and dies. Uh, Reynolds survives it, writes home and says, I can't imagine I could ever be in a worse place, so to speak. And uh, I think in reading that, I always reflect of what's ahead in his future. <laughs> but you only know what you know at the time. And, and he was, uh, you know, shaken by the experience, but got through it. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, things uh, get a little more precarious for him as the war progresses. Well, talk a little bit about the campaign that he was on after that. Uh, Zachary Taylor, they, they would go into northern Mexico. Uh, what was their operational plan? Yeah, their operational plan is to, is to move against the armies and, and ultimately uh, squash them and, you know, put an end to this thing. But, and so it's a one-by-one one thing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the next battle the Reynolds in, uh, he's been in siege uh, to start his uh, conflict experiences, and now he's going to be in um, urban warfare because it's the Battle of Monterey. It's a great image in the book that uh, found, I believe it was a Library of Congress, that really speaks to the fighting. But it reminds you of what we see today, uh, or what we had seen uh, in the Middle East with the urban fighting, uh, house by house. And you read the accounts, it's amazing. But here Reynolds is with what they would call flying artillery that's designed for open field, uh, battlefield warfare. And now he's in a city environment. And it's, it's very precarious. And they get cut off in areas and they have to lift the artillery, enlist the help of infantrymen uh, as needed, but get this stuff maneuvered in town. And, and horses are getting, uh, you know, in the midst of this and bullets are hitting them and you're losing the horses. And how are you going to do this? And uh, Reynolds' leadership really comes to the fore in this effort. Uh, talk more about that. How was he as a combat leader? Oh, yeah. Le uh, Reynolds, uh, and this gets overlooked uh, by a lot of folks. Uh, people will talk at Gettysburg that, uh, you know, maybe he shouldn't have been as far forward as he should be. He's a, he's a wing commander there. But in that discussion, certainly there's argument can be made on both sides. But I think the roots of what you see in terms of Reynolds' actions go all the way back to Mexico. He never hesitated to place himself at the front of his men. He was a leader that, if you will, uh, a lot of the theory speaks to transformational leaders. Is he that kind of guy that you can look to in the, in the heat of action and he's there in the front? A Chamberlain, if you will, Gettysburg, any other number of folks. And he was that guy, not only in Mexico, but in battles um, in the Civil War before Gettysburg, quite often found in the front lines. And, and I point this out in the book. To me, it's really um, fortunate that Reynolds has not met his demise much earlier because he placed himself in harm's way any number of times 
in Mexico in the Civil War and then ultimately at Gettysburg where it did cost him his life. Now another battle that he was in was Buena Vista. What happened there? Yeah, Buena Vista, huge classic battle. Um, uh, just open fields and, and this is where the flying artillery can really come into play and does so. Reynolds is anywhere and everywhere during that battle. Um, but this is where um, that uh, ultimate moment comes. I mean, the battle opens on Washington's birthday, February 22nd, and the force that Taylor has at this point has been greatly stripped of some of what they call the regulars. These are guys that are in the Army before the Civil War, not just the volunteers. So it is largely a volunteer force, but thank goodness for Taylor, he still has the artillery there, has some regular troops, but not many. And then when uh, Santa Ana's army hard presses Taylor's forces, it's the artillery that's going to save the day. And as much as said by all the uh, military officers that are there on behalf of the United States, that doesn't mean it's not very close. And it is. It is. There's a frontal assault that takes place. And if you read Reynolds' account of what he sees coming, I actually read it to a fellow historian. Uh, and I said, where, the, where do you think this quote comes from? And I read the quote and I said, oh, this is the Union line looking out over Pickett's charge. I said, no, no, this is, this is uh, Mexico, my friend. <laughs> and this is Reynolds' comment on what he sees at Buena Vista. Uh, a good view indeed. <laughs> so when the war comes to an end, uh, what happens to his career at that point? Yeah, so Reynolds has uh, earned uh, two brevet promotions. Those are honorary rank promotions, which is a good thing, uh, but still looking to uh, work his way up through the ranks. And he'll get a break, he'll get to come home, uh, recognized as a war hero. I wonder, is he suffering with some degree of PTSD? And I say in the book, it's beyond the scope of the book to, to delve into this, but he's invited to uh, a gathering in Lancaster. Uh, he refuses. He, he just wants to stay with the family. He does uh, enjoy his time there from everything you can read about it in terms of the letters that are written amongst the family. But um, Reynolds will then uh, be back to duty, and now he's going to have his chance to go west and, uh, and see some real frontier duty and, and the arduous trip across the country which is interesting in and of itself. And uh, it sheds new light on what Army life could be like because he's going to encounter all kinds of difficulties from you know, the weather to the circumstances with Native Americans and, uh, and everything under the sun. Now you just mentioned the, the letters he was writing with his family. Talk more about that. That, that that's a, plays an important part in the book in terms of what you know about him. How important Absolutely. was that with his family? Crucial. So Reynolds, I think one thing that, that rung true with me in looking at anything that had been written about Reynolds going back to uh, Edward Nichols' landmark biography and Mike Riley's work is that uh, this is a man that dearly loves his family. It comes to the fore in all his letters. Always did from the time he was away at the Lidditz Academy as a young man to the time as an adult. And he's always concerned about the family, especially concerned about his youngest sisters who are not married, their welfare, their personal welfare, their financial welfare. Uh, so there's always that concern on his mind. Very poignant letters, talks about uh, something that uh, one of the sisters had sewn for him one time and sent so he could stay warm on duty when he was up in um, some colder environs. And uh, just, just a very thoughtful person and also you see uh, little bits where it's, he knows that uh, he would like to have a mate someday. Um, he seems to be a confirmed bachelor, but the letters, if you read in between the lines and then you read the lines themselves, because one time he writes home and says, okay, uh, in essence, I'm getting old enough, start looking for someone for me. 
And, and you don't know whether it's quite tongue-in-cheek or not, but the mere fact that he mentions it tells you it's on his mind. Did he write about details of his military experience, for example, his, his time in Mexico? He did. He absolutely did. And these letters are treasure trove, Phil, and we're so um, fortunate to have these. The family, we, uh, the Reynolds family descendants, have been amazing. There are a couple branches in particular that donated items to Franklin and Marshall uh, in Lancaster, and these are a, these letters are a treasure trove. Uh, there have been other items done. There's even a lock of hair. Reynolds cut his hair while he was in Mexico. It was getting on his nerves, and he cut a piece. That lock of hair is still over at uh, Franklin and Marshall. So uh, these letters speak volumes about his experience. He talks about details. In the same letter, there'll be many personal things, but you know, in one breath he's talking about something to do with the battle and what he experienced and, and the horses and we were lucky to get out of there alive. And, and then the next moment, uh, by the way, I'm sending home this lock of hair, make sure Ellie keeps it, etc. that type of thing. So it's, it's, the, the letters are just priceless. You mentioned that uh, he made a couple of trips across the country. Of course, this is before railroads, so you know, it would have been on foot or on horse. Uh, what, what was the reason for going out there in the first place? Yeah, for the most part, since the uh, population is, is migrating west, and certainly in California and Oregon, uh, you know, you get the gold rush, and there's a need to have more troops on hand to protect the citizens that are out there, the growing towns, San Francisco, Sacramento, what have you. Uh, so there's an acute need for that. Uh, interesting in that uh, Reynolds, in essence, dodges another bullet uh, because the second time he goes west, they're moving a group of soldiers, uh, third artillery out, and they decide to, we'll go ahead and put these guys on a ship and move them. That's a brand new ship, uh, pride of the fleet, the uh, steamship San Francisco and comes out of New York in December, just before Christmas, and uh, it flounders off the coast of Delaware. And there's a heavy storm there, and you'll read that this was a hurricane. It wasn't a hurricane, it's too late in the year to be a hurricane. It's in all likelihood a nor'easter, what we call a subtropical, not subtropical uh, storm, excuse me, but a nor'easter. And uh, the seas are so heavy that the, the main uh, passenger compartment of the vessel is just washed away and you're going to lose a lot of soldiers. And then uh, over the ensuing days, ships try to rescue these guys, but then cholera sets in, and nobody wants to rescue anybody. Ultimately, the ship uh, will sink. A number of folks are rescued, but they lose a serious amount of the 3rd Artillery. And uh, then so Reynolds is left in command of some of these guys, and then they're going to go across by land after this. But he could have been on that ship, but he happened to be on leave. So this is another instance where he avoids you know, a cruel fate early in his career. Now, part of that journey uh, across the country included a stop in Salt Lake. What was that mm -hmm. experience like? Yeah, uh, he doesn't like Salt Lake too much, John. <laughs> doesn't speak too well of that in his letters. I mean, a great photo taken of him out there, uh, not in uniform, which is interesting, uh, in the book. Um, but Phil, uh, yeah, he's not too impressed with uh, the citizenry there in Salt Lake, and he's really upset about a case where there had been some uh, an attack by some Native Americans on some Army soldiers, and he felt that uh, the punishment wasn't in line with what should have been done, and so he wasn't happy with that either. Couldn't wait to get out of Salt Lake and get to the West Coast. Of course, one time he gets out there, and the next thing you know, he's in the, basically the desert suffering extreme heat. 
He gets out of that and they're sending him up to, uh, to uh, Port Orford or Fort Orford at the time in Oregon. And uh, unbelievably, on a ship this time, he's on a ship that flounders on what they call the Columbia Bar, which is known by many people as a graveyard of the Pacific. So here he is and almost drowns there. That ship almost goes down to Davy Jones' locker. It's a miracle that he said it himself that uh, he survived that. Uh, talk more about his time in the desert. Uh, what fort was he at? What was he doing there? Yeah, so uh, this is early on when he first gets to the West Coast. Uh, they move him down and, um, let's see, is it Yuma? I'm trying to remember the name, Phil. There's so many, <laughs> so much of this. You write a book two years ago and you lose some of the details if you're not on, on top of it all the time. But uh, it's a fort, uh, interestingly enough, uh, his favorite instructor at uh, West Point uh, was uh, Professor Kendrick, uh, affectionately known as Dad Kendrick. Kendrick had been at this particular location early on and um, basically said it was like hell with the fires put out. And Reynolds wrote home and said, well, I agree with Kendrick pretty much, but I think the fires are still burning. So the heat was so bad there um, that uh, it was almost unbearable. Then uh, he goes uh, to Oregon and uh is there with the, the Rouge River Indians. So what's that experience like for him? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a, it's a, uh, an eye-opener for him because uh, there's some fierce fighters. And, um, and apparently the citizenry there was happy enough with uh, what was done to quell any uprisings, any dangers to the citizenry that uh, he was presented a watch by uh, a beautiful gold watch and uh, writes about this. And uh, no one knew where the watch was for years. Uh, so many things that are in the book, Phil, were things that were open-ended and truly blessed by any number of people. You'll notice the acknowledgement sections in my book is huge, as it should be. No one writes a book by themselves. This is no greater example. And uh, located the watch not, not too long ago. And that was actually after the book was published. But there are a lot of things in this book that had been MIA, so to speak, that uh, of course are in the book for people to see. But yeah, interesting experience for Reynolds out there to be sure. Now we're getting closer to the point where Kate and John meet, uh, but let's kind of catch up with Kate. Uh, where does she go from New York to California? Yeah, so Kate, it's interesting, it had been written years ago, uh, a woman named Mary Maloney, who was a student at St. Joseph's down in Emmitsburg, interestingly enough, was really the first one. Uh, Nichols mentions uh, Kate Hewitt in his book, but Mary was intrigued by this, and she brought to the fore the story of Kate Hewitt and John Reynolds. And uh, some of the earliest things she wrote about it unveiled the fact that, that um, Kate is now going to leave New York and end up in California as a governess for a well-to-do family. Now the family name she mentions, you can't find anybody in San Francisco by that exact name. And this perplexed historians for years. And you look back to end notes and what have you in uh, Mary Maloney's work, and there was nothing there to give you the document that she based that name upon. So we sort of had to do some reverse analysis here to find out where Kate was actually going. We believe she was going to the home of Robert Blinn Woodward, who was a very prominent San Franciscan, um, had a, an attraction out there that was basically part um, Central Park, part Smithsonian, Woodward's Gardens. That was after Kate's time, but also uh, an establishment, a temperance establishment called the What Cheer House. But super well-to-do guy, children, he had come from the East Coast. Now we found some documentation, and this is in another book called The Two Catherines by a guy named uh, Burns, that talks about um, this ship that leaves 
the East Coast with a young lady on it, doesn't mention a name, who's going to uh, basically be a caretaker for the children of the Woodward family. Uh, so it's the same last name that Mary had put forth in her papers, Mary Maloney, uh, but different initials. So we think there was a little transcription issue back in the day, if you will. We believe we had the right Woodward that, that Kate was working for. But in essence, to answer your question, she's going to be a governess for this family. That's the reason to go to the West Coast. She's an orphan. She's making her way through life on her own. There's not a lot of work for a single woman back then. Uh, this is one opportunity to work and hopefully do well enough for yourself. And so she does this, goes to California. So uh, John's in Oregon. How does he end up then back in San Francisco? So John's in Oregon, and actually he ends up at Fort Vancouver just prior to the time he's going to come back to San Francisco. Uh, and there's a great picture in the book that uh, I'd never seen before of John at Fort Vancouver. So uh, John has got orders now to come back to West Point. He's coming full circle, going to be commandant of West Point. So it's time to get to San Francisco and board a ship. And ironically, the ship he's going to get on July 1st, 1860, excuse me, July 21st, 1860, is the same vessel that Catherine Hewitt is going to board to head back east herself to begin the process to become a Catholic. Now, there's been interesting uh, occurrences between the time she went to California to become a governess for this family, the Woodward family, and the time she heads back. That uh, period in between is an area no one knew much about, and uh, we discovered something that I would say is startling because it certainly didn't fit with what you maybe felt about Kate Hewitt. But as you examine what we found, uh, it in essence makes perfect sense. Now, you write in the book that at one point uh, she was being referred to as Kate Wentworth. Uh, what is the meaning of the word Wentworth? Wentworth, yeah, so exactly, Phil. Uh, this was the shot out of the dark, if you will. There's a reporter on the vessel that John and Kate board, the Golden Age. And I don't think anyone had ever known the name of the vessel that they rode down to Panama. It's another thing in the book, and we have an image of it, a drawing. But this reporter writes a great report of his experiences on this voyage, and he's on it all the way to New York. Um, but he mentions, makes mention of the fact that General Harney is on the vessel, and there are a number of military officers, and, and Reynolds is in that group. But he also mentions that there are you know, a couple of famous people, one of them being Kate Winworth recently of the Bruton Affair, traveling as C. Hewitt. Okay, that's got to be Catherine Hewitt. And so we found a passenger list, and, and you see this, and you say, all right, so let me look up uh, Kate Wentworth, traveling as C. Hewitt. Who is Kate What is this Kate Wentworth name? And you begin to dig, and you begin to dig, and then you unsurface some... Uh, I guess you could call them golden nuggets. It's bits of information that no one had ever seen, to my knowledge, about her life. So, uh, now Wentworth was not the name that we know her of. Uh, right. Why was that name? So this is her alias. This is her alias. So Kate, something happened, obviously, in her time with uh, the Woodward family. She left the Woodward family, made her way to Sacramento, and she's on her own at this point. And she mentions in a letter she writes to one newspaper later, tied to this whole Bruton affair thing, that she's actually caring for uh, a child, not a child of her own, but an adopted sister, if you will, about 10 years old. <clears throat> she needs money. At that time, again, there's not a lot women can do. And many women 
turn to the world's oldest profession. And in looking for the census reports for Kate Wentworth in Sacramento, we see the occupation listed. We see the occupation listed for her and all the other women that are living in close proximity to Kate Wentworth. And that occupation is P-R-O-S, period. And of course, that means prostitute. And that's a shocker. Now, you mentioned uh, Bruton, James Goodwin Bruton. Who is he? Yeah, yeah. So he's a local politician, well-known, um, and supposedly above-board guy. But apparently, uh, he had come to know Kate, uh, come to have uh, affection for Kate, so much so that he's going to leave his wife with Kate and head east and start life anew with Kate. Uh, and apparently, Kate was on board with this. And this is, of course, long before she meets John Reynolds. Uh, but she finds out, Kate does, that Bruton is going to leave his family destitute without any money. And so her conscience obviously bothered her about this. She reached out to Bruton's wife and let her know what was at play. And so as Bruton's ready to board the ship, uh, he finds out that he isn't going anywhere. And the wife, of course, is quite upset. He's disgraced in the community. Kate, meanwhile, I think this is probably the catalyst for her epiphany, if you will, because it's a year later. Ironically, the ship she was going to get on to head east with Bruton was the Golden Age. A year later, the Golden Age, captain, by the way, by the same gentleman who was captain of the SS San Francisco when it sunk with members of the 3rd Artillery. Uh, so history does these things. But anyway, a year later, she boards the Golden Age, and of course, that's where she meets John. You mentioned that the, the reporter was on the ship and was writing about the, the passengers. Does that article still survive? Yes, it does. And I'll tell you, uh, if you look back at the research that's been done about John and Kate, you realize it's been excellent research. And I say in the book, my work uh, and the work of Mary Pitkin, who helped me, stands on the shoulders of those that have come before us. Every year, more and more things are available. And the newspapers that are now digitized are a goldmine a gold mine of information. And so that's where we found this article uh, that was written about this experience. And had we not found this, uh, we wouldn't have known any of that. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have known to look for Kate Wentworth. But that's when the puzzle pieces began to fit and make sense. So was the article more of a travel log or was it kind of a gossip sheet? Uh, no, I, I think the article was a little bit of both, Phil. A little bit of both, because uh, mentioning Kate Wentworth tends towards a gossipy kind of thing. You know, this Bruton affair was a big deal. It was written about in the San Francisco papers, written about in the Sacramento papers, because he was a prominent individual. And, um, and, and the rebuttal that Kate publishes speaks to her education, which we talked about earlier and I mentioned. And she writes a very poignant note in there about uh, basically detailing uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to be critical of her, but she hadn't had the privilege of many other people in life or the position to maybe not have to do what she had to do to survive. And I urge everybody to pay close attention to that, that excerpt that we, we captured in the book. Uh, they called it a personal card back then if you had a rebuttal. And then that, again, in the newspaper. But that article covers everything. Talks about uh, the food on the vessel, how terrible it was, but it was fairly clean. You get over to the East Coast, now you're on the North Star, the SS North Star, and uh, the food's pretty good, but there are bed bugs everywhere and spittle all over the decks from chewing tobacco. And it's just pretty horrible. I mean, you think about today, the people complain if they're out on a cruise, oh, this wasn't right or that wasn't right. The travel back then was uh, very arduous, to say the least. 
Now, you mentioned that the Bruton affair was a, a well-known scandal at the time. Any evidence that Reynolds was aware of it? No evidence that he was. No evidence that he was. I haven't seen anything anywhere. Uh, we wonder what Reynolds knew about Kate's past. And this is the other thing that comes into play when you start thinking about they're keeping the engagement a secret. And for years I would tell people, well, if there's religious differences, you're not going to write a letter home and tell the family, uh, she's Irish Catholic <laughs> and uh, I'm going to marry her because they're going to hate her before they meet her. There's so much prejudice against the Irish and Catholics back then. So the, the thought was, you know, let me introduce her in person uh, because once they meet her, they'll grow to love her like I did. Uh, so that was always the thought. But this adds another dimension to it. Did John know anything about her past? If he did, is that why he's waiting to introduce her to the family? Is that why it's a secret? We do not know. Um, you, you just imagine them on the ship together. They obviously get to know one another very well, well enough to fall in love. And I would think as, as smart as Reynolds is, if he didn't know everything, he must have had a feeling that Kate Hewitt, Wentworth, uh, was certainly a woman who was experienced in life and not some, some uh, fair maiden who, uh, you know, had never been anywhere, never done anything. Here's an orphan, had to fend for herself. She's been uh, a governess. Something happened there. We don't know what, but she's been on her own. Uh, there had to be something about her persona that would tell you there was more to her than, than met the eye, uh, but also that education. That education had to impress him. So I imagine if he didn't know, there had to be a little bit of uncertainty. So uh, after he returns, he goes to West Point. Does she go with him? She does not go with him. She goes to Philadelphia, Torsdale. Uh, it's a Sacred Heart Academy, uh, known colloquially as Eden Hall. And uh, she's a student there for a year. Now she brings the adopted sister with her, we believe. And that's uh, on a ship log, is listed as Mary North. But uh, no, this, this is her adopted sister, who's also gonna convert. So they uh, have their baptism. They make their first communion, and then ultimately, now they're going to be confirmed as Catholic. Kate will leave. The adopted sister will stay. So uh, we believe after a year's time, Kate leaves there. We believe she stays in the Philadelphia area. Was Eden Hall expensive to attend? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we give some figures in the book uh, what it cost and then equate that to today's dollars. And it was very significant. So then you're left to wonder, well, where did Kate get the money? Uh, obviously, she must have done well um, in Sacramento, um, but ultimately, we believe there could have been money from the family. She and her brother were probably too young to inherit any money up until a point, but she might have reached an age where she got some money. Because the education that she seems to have had almost dictates that there was money spent to send her to a decent school. Again, this is one gap that we were unable to solve with regard to the parents and whether or not they were indeed well-to-do. So we're, we're just on the edge of the Civil War breaking out. What's going on at West Point for Reynolds? Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a, an unusual time, to say the least, although they're a bit isolated from everything. He writes home one time and talks about this and says, you know, in our little world here, we, we really don't really have a feel for what's going on far and wide, but soon enough, uh, that all changes. And um, as a states, uh, Lincoln is elected, states start to secede, and then ultimately into the following spring, of course, with Fort Sumter. Now the handwriting's on the wall. And Reynolds writes home again and wonders how much longer any students are going to be there, any cadets from the South. And it's not long before they start leaving. 
and you quote him in the book in one of his letters to his, his brother. Uh, he writes, we are in the midst of troubles everywhere now, and in the present unsettled state of the country, we may well ask what is to become of us as well. Seem to be a great deal of uncertainty about their future. Absolutely, absolutely. And so um, a number of students do leave, and of course by this point, now they're looking for officers to head up regiments. And before long, uh, Reynolds is uh, promoted, and he's gonna be uh, moved out in uh, regiment of Connecticut soldiers, but that doesn't last long. That doesn't last long at all because Reynolds uh, has made a name for himself and sure enough people start looking to uh, assign him to a better position and sure enough he makes Brigadier General uh, pretty soon in August and now he's going to be placed in command fittingly of the Pennsylvania Reserves. Now before we get into the Civil War, he, mm -hmm. he uh, uh, George Armstrong Custer is a cadet at the West yes, Point, and he indeed. arrests him. Why? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, apparently it had to do with a fight that was uh, taking place there. And uh, if memory serves, Custer should have gotten in there and, and stopped that thing and didn't. And and uh, it wasn't a good situation, and Reynolds wasn't happy about it. So Custer's watching everybody march off to war. And, of course, if you know anything about Custer, he's not happy about that. But he had enough connections that that was resolved pretty quick. And, uh, of course, he gets in the fray right away. But it's interesting because, of course, Custer's at Gettysburg. And, uh, and Custer, I draw a parallel there. Custer would refer to his uh, good fortune many times. Uh, of course, before the uh, undoing, um, uh, you know, Custer's last stand. Uh, there are many brushes of death with Custer has. And he would call it Custer luck. And I equate that to Reynolds. Uh, Any time, Reynolds could have been killed in Mexico, as I mentioned, could have been killed in peacetime on one ship that he wasn't on, on another ship he was on, and uh, as we'll see in the Civil War. So uh, I hadn't heard anybody else put it that way, but uh, I kind of saw the parallel there with what I would call Reynolds' luck. So how did Reynolds perform as a combat leader in the Civil War? Uh, very good, very good. And I think this is something that I was uh, happy to be able to bring to the fore for a modern audience. Uh, again, Ed Nichols does a great job in his book covering this, but uh, there's been more recent scholarship in terms of some of the battles he was involved in. Uh, so you'll have uh, down in Virginia early in the war with the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days Battles, the Battle of Mechanicsville, and then you have also um, Gaines's Mill, where ultimately he's captured. Um, then later on in the war, you have um, Second Manassas, where he really makes a name for himself, uh, covering the retreat of the Union forces there. And then, of course, he's at Fredericksburg and at Chancellorsville. His troops don't get into too much at Chancellorsville, but uh, certainly at Mechanicsville and then at uh, Second Manassas. You really see where Reynolds is at the front. And there's quotes there, and I don't know if you have one there, Phil, but, uh, you know, of course, much is made about Chamberlain at Gettysburg and the bayonet charge, and that's not the only action at Gettysburg that deserves attention. As a guide, we always tell people there's 700 colonels on this battlefield, so there's a lot more stories to share. But I thought when I saw the quote with regard to Reynolds uh, covering the retreat of the Union forces at Second Manassas, and he wasn't alone in doing this. Sykes was there with some U.S. regulars and some artillery that was key, too. But Reynolds is, is right out front. Vintage Reynolds grabbing a flag, uh, one of the, the flags of the regiments in the unit, and he's going back and forth, urging the troops on. And there's a there's a point in there where he talks about, you know, charge bayonets, and and you can just if you saw the movie Gettysburg and you saw Chamberlain's moment, you're going to feel that with Reynolds right there at uh, Second Manassas. Now earlier you talked about uh, his death and Kate's meeting with the family for the first time. Mm -hmm. So th they were engaged, but obviously the, the death changes the course of her life. Where does she go after that? Absolutely. Great question, Phil. So she had made him this, the promise, and this is the other part of it. You have the secret engagement, which is intrigue enough, 
But now you have this, this promise she made him, this poignant promise, that if he were to be killed during the war, she would seek a religious life. And she does so. Now, some of the information out there would indicate that she starts this right away, within four or five days. What it is, is there's a letter written from Eden Hall to the Daughters of Charity in Emmitsburg, just 10 miles south of Gettysburg, inquiring about the possibility of Kate becoming a sister. She actually begins a process that fall with what they call postulancy at Mount Hope in Baltimore. This is basically a trial period, see if this life is going to be suitable for you. And then March 17, 1864, formal process, she becomes what they call a seminary sister with the Daughters of Charity in Emmitsburg. And now she's beginning this process to ultimately take vows to be a sister, not a nun. Another mistake that's out there, Phil, and I had no idea, and I should be ashamed of that, raised Catholic, but they do not call in the Daughters of Charity, the sisters, nuns, they're sisters. So if you see the word nun, that's a misnomer. But she begins that process in March of 1864. What would her life have been like there? Uh, you know, this is a life of a typical uh, sister or nun in, uh, in other communities or orders, uh, and they call it a community with the Daughters of Charity. Uh, she's gonna be doing work in the community to help out, help out with the poor, help out with the hungry. This is the Daughters of Charity mission. And she, her first mission is in Emmitsburg, and that's where she'll spend the first year. Uh, she'll receive the habit in the fall of 1864, and then ultimately she's sent on a mission far away from Emmitsburg. She's going to be sent to Albany, New York. Does she continue to have a relationship with the family? Yes, and we're so fortunate that she does. What happens is John Reynolds' sisters would like to see where John Reynolds met his demise on the battlefield at Gettysburg. Now they make a trip to Gettysburg in November of 1863 in an attempt to find out where he was killed. There are images, and there's an image in the book, Reynolds family, brother, sisters, and Kate Hewitt photographed together. No one has ever realized that this is Kate Hewitt in a photograph. Thanks again to the good graces of the family one of the branches of the family, and I thank them in there. Just unbelievable. Well, the photo of Kate on the cover, no one had ever seen, supplied to me by the family very generously. But they visit the battlefield in November, don't see where he's killed. They go back in the spring, early spring of 1864, with Reynolds' orderly, Charles Vale, who has remained in close contact with the family to see where Reynolds was killed. He takes them out to what we call the first day's battlefield. And then they make a trip to Emmitsburg to visit Kate. So the sisters now, two of them at least, go to see Kate. Charles Vale is with them. Kate Hewitt had been preparing a handkerchief for John Reynolds. And we'll probably talk about this, Phil, but she had an extraordinary skill in embroidery. This handkerchief had only been in one or two publications many moons ago. In the book, found the thing. I was so glad this was saved by the Vale family for years. But that handkerchief was given to Charles Vale by Kate Hewitt in recognition of the fact that he was the last one with Reynolds before he was killed. And so the sisters feel a strong kinship with Charles Vale. They write to him any number of times about any communications they've had with Kate Hewitt. And so this is our only method of knowing how Kate is doing because the sis she's communicating with the sisters and they make mention of it to Charles Vale every so often. So we can glean from those letters how she's doing with the Sisters of Charity. And one thing that comes up is she is having some health issues. She's got a cough that won't seem to go away. 
And of course, we know today this is tuberculosis, which they called consumption back then. Now you mentioned her embroidery skills, and this is something that once she moves to Albany, her, her skills would kind of flower there. Uh, talk about that, uh, and what would happen at the Centennial Exposition? Yeah, the Centennial. So this is, um, Phil, it comes after she's sent to Albany. Uh, she's with the Daughters of Charity for a couple of years and then disappears mysteriously. And I know we're gonna get to the heart of the story, uh, but a few years later, while she's on her own, she begins to become very well known in the community for her embroidery skills and her sewing skills in general. But ultimately, she is tasked with creating a flag to pay tribute to the state of New York at the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia, 1876. There is a women's pavilion there. This is a remarkable thing at the time. It's a fabulous building. And inside, the, the exhibits are just extraordinary. But Kate Hewitt's banner that she creates is so remarkable that uh, any number of reporters talk about it. But there's one account by a reporter from a Chicago newspaper that is just amazing when you read it, how he talks about this banner and the skills that are on display that have been used to create this stunning banner. He said, I think he said there's only two things, uh, not only two things, but that there were two, especially two things worthy of note in this pavilion. And her banner was one of them. And it was so remarkable that she received an award for it, a special, special award for her skill set in creating that banner. Does the banner survive? A banner, please, anyone watching this program, help me find this banner. I have reached out far and wide to every conceivable place I can think of, museums, different organizations, uh, people that are uh, especially involved in embroidery, uh, etc. cannot locate this banner. My guess it's it's gone or it's sitting in an attic somewhere. So I really hope and pray that it's in someone's attic and this thing will come, uh, come, uh, come about again because we need to see this banner. Now her life would take another turn. She would become, she would run a school, she would get married. What happened? Yeah, so this was the missing. This is a huge missing piece of the puzzle, Phil. Uh, we knew that Kate had been engaged to John, had the promise, entered the Daughters of Charity, ended up in Albany, uh, left the Daughters of Charity under some uncertain circumstances, but now is back here she is again, and one thing I make a point in the book, Phil, she's a lady of amazing perseverance, triumph over adversity. Time and again, she's knocked to the canvas. She gets up. And it doesn't matter whether it's what happened as an orphan in California, John gets killed, and now she's with the Tars of Charity. Seems like that's going to be it. No, she's on her own again. So she begins to teach independently. And then she joins with another former sister of the Tars of Charity. They teach together for a while, then independently again. But... During her time as a daughter of charity, as a sister of the Daughters of Charity, she comes to know a local florist there who's doing business, of course, with the church, St. Joseph's there in Albany. And um, as fate would have it, they must have become very close because by June of 1874, we find that she marries a young man who operates a florist in Albany named Joseph Fort. That's spelled with the P at the beginning. A little unusual spelling, pronounced Fort. We know this because a family member, descendant, had the family Bible with the wedding listed in it, with the names. And the genealogy for that happened to be online and make mention of the fact that Catherine Ford had once been a sister with the Daughters of Charity. And the genealogist I mentioned, Mary Stanford Pitkin, found that. And that was our hook. And then ultimately we found the family member with the family Bible, image of that in the book as well. And, and we had finally resolved 
that mystery of what had happened to Kate Hewitt. So we only have a few minutes left. What do you want people to take away from this relationship that you were exploring? I want people to take away, uh, as I mentioned, the fact that Catherine Hewitt was a woman of amazing perseverance. Um, I want people to take away the human aspect of it. Um, paraphrasing Rudyard Kipling, if history was told in a form of stories, it would never be forgotten. That was Lincoln's wishes, that we wouldn't forget what happened at Gettysburg. And I think people can come to Gettysburg forever, but they won't remember what happened there if they don't remember the stories. So I want them to remember the love, I want to remember the heroism, the tragedy, the sacrifice that took place at Gettysburg through all the stories we can share, but most especially this one. More often than not, the first one they're going to hear on one of our tours. Well, we've been speaking with Jeffrey Harding. He is the author of Gettysburg's Lost Love Story, The Ill-Fated Romance of General John Reynolds and Kate Hewitt. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely, sir. Thank you. I appreciate you hosting me. Thank you to Arcadia Publishing for publishing the book. I hope everybody enjoys it. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.